Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Drop top Porsche, rolly on my wrist, diamonds up and down my chain. Drop top Porsche, rolling on my wrist, diamonds up and down my chain, ha ha, Carter B straight stuntin', can't tell me nothing, bounced up, now I change the game, you see me? Big bonks, boogie got all them girls shook, a big fat ass got all them boys cooked, went from dollar bills, now be poppin' rubber bands, Bruno sing to me while I do my money dance, I'm flexin' on the ground like, hey, hit the little John, okay, okay, yeah we trippin' and finessing, gettin' paid. It's time for Primal Endurance Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Should we play this in the background the whole time? What do you think? And I'm gonna show you off! No, let's get down to business, man. We have some great questions today. Uh, they do seem to be hitting a recurring theme, and that is about the uh, effectiveness of the math heart rate training, the aerobic base building, the emphasizing of low-intensity aerobic workouts when you're striving to uh, perform wonderful, magnificent endurance feats. So let's go through these and set things straight and keep the, uh, keep the things going and get into some details that might uh, cause some confusion. Hopefully, they'll uh, be relevant to uh, many of you out there who are striving to do the right thing and become a fat, burning beast who's healthy, who can perform well, and enjoy a nice, active, healthy, broad fitness competency life, rather than being just one of those endurance sloggers, uh, showing very narrow fitness focus and many aspects of poor health, including that uh, disastrous pattern of high-carbohydrate consumption and high-carbohydrate expenditure from uh, black hole-style workouts. So Chris uh, writes in saying, I'm trying to stay committed to the math method following the 180 minus age. For me, that's 147. It's a brutally slow place. I wonder if body composition plays into this at all and if I can work at a slightly higher heart rate since I have a higher body mass index. I've found that if I follow the breathe through your nose recommendation, I'm able to run very comfortably at 157 to 162. That's 10 beats higher than math up to 15 beats higher which led me to ponder the body comp variable. Uh, my pace at MAF is 1330 per mile and slower, um, and I'm really a two-hour half-marathon guy, uh, granted at a very high heart rate. How can I possibly expect to chop five minutes a mile off my pace to achieve a half-marathon PR? Well, there's some great uh, points that come up here that I think are very relevant for everyone. First, you're talking about um, your racing PR at half-marathon, and admittedly can maintain a heart rate that's well above your maximum aerobic heart rate for that entire duration of two hours. Even a marathon, a full marathon, can be run uh, at a heart rate higher than MAF and a faster pace than MAF. Uh, Maffetone's doing some, uh, a large body of research trying to gather data from actual runners uh, and their marathon performances along with their uh, maximum aerobic function test times and trying to speculate and make a recommendation that uh, your ideal marathon pace or a, a suggested goal marathon pace 
is 15 seconds per mile faster than your maximum aerobic function test. And remember, you're only doing the test for, say, a couple miles. So if you can run, let's say, uh, 16 minutes for two miles with a maximum aerobic function test, pegging your heart rate at that maximum aerobic heart rate, uh, you can aspire to the goal of running an entire marathon at 745 pace in this example. If your example is 13 minutes and 30 seconds, like um, uh, Chris is stating that's his math heart rate, then you can run a marathon at um, 13 minutes, 15 seconds. Now, the half marathon obviously is going to be well under the math pace, and we can't have an exact calculation there. There's a lot of variables, but I want to answer that one first off. So, Back to the start of the question, does body composition play into uh, the math calculation? And if you have a higher BMI, more fat on you, can you raise your math heart rate? Absolutely not. Sorry to pick on you, man, but you teed me up really nicely. Uh, In fact, I would speculate that if you do have extra body fat, it might even warrant a reduction in your calculation to go five beats below math. Because if you're carrying around excess body fat, that's a sign of diminished fitness, diminished fat burning capacity, or adverse dietary practices, all of those things are going to compromise your fitness progress and make your workouts more stressful. Obviously, it's more stressful, more difficult to carry around extra weight as you go through your workouts. So um, that's going to be an easy and quick and obvious answer. Uh, I also like that you brought up the uh, breathing through your nose test, because if you get good at breathing through your nose or a little sloppy, like maybe there's a little air going in and out of your mouth, you're going to be able to, quote unquote, comfortably hold a pace that's faster than math. So that was thrown out there in the book. It's thrown out there commonly that if you can breathe through your nose, you're... uh, That's a good sign that you're exercising at a comfortable pace. I still like it as a general recommendation, but this is so important. It's so critical and make or breaking of your success in endurance sports that I really, really advocate for wearing a heart rate monitor at every single workout. Look, I've been doing this stuff for 30 years. I got my first uh, heart rate monitor, a giant polar uh, heart rate monitor, uh, rectangular shape, the size of uh, maybe a small toaster uh, and threw that thing on my wrist in 1987. And I still use a heart rate monitor today. Uh, Virtually every workout I do, sometimes I uh, forget it or don't have it. But uh, I would claim that I'm pretty good at uh, sensing what heart rate I'm at just from intuitive sense. But I routinely find that I'm going to exceed that maximum aerobic heart rate so easily and absentmindedly if I'm listening to a podcast or who knows what, uh, not totally dialed in uh, and, and just kind of anxious to get home or whatever's going on in my mind uh, that will drift me up into the beeping zone. And I get that familiar beep and it keeps me honest after 30 years of practice. So if you've had 12 years or three years or 18 months of practice and you uh, make that ambitious statement that you don't need your watch anymore because you can totally sense what pace you're at and you can sense what's comfortable and what's not, uh, I'm going to challenge that uh, very strongly. If you flip to the sidebar in Primal Endurance where I talk about uh, my uh, digging myself a hole in the early months of 2015 that resulted in 
uh, a very serious uh, emergency appendectomy, appendectomy surgery that had complications and health problems for many months after. And I attribute that blowing out of an organ and coming into the hospital with extreme dehydration uh, to a pattern of exercise where I was routinely exceeding my maximum aerobic heart rate by around 12 beats uh, because I made an old-time calculation from some of the old uh, factors that we used to use and go by, uh, such as 80% of max heart rate, or even in the case of the still uh, popular bantered around ventilatory threshold, um, which equates for most people to be between 70 and 75% of max heart rate. Uh, and I, the, the mistake I made was knowing that I still have a high max heart rate uh, more so than the age-predicted formulas would indicate. Uh, let's say that uh, at the time I was 50, so the 220 minus your age max heart rate calculation suggested that my max heart rate was 180 beats per minute, and I knew that it was over 190, so I gave myself 12 more beats in training to where I set my beeper at 142 instead of 130. So for months and months and months, and this is after... Uh, quite a few years of layoff where I wasn't really doing much endurance training and all of a sudden I was super enthusiastic to come back and be a professional speed golfer. So I was putting in a lot of uh, endurance hours that were unfamiliar to me, even though I have a background from uh, years and years. I was pushing it too hard. It felt fine at 142, folks. I was not huffing and puffing and sweating and feeling exhausted afterward. Uh, But as you pile on the months and months of black hole training that's slightly above your aerobic maximum to the extent that you're stimulating a little bit of stress hormone production, a little bit of uh, lactate waste products in the bloodstream, and a little bit more glucose burning and diminished fat burning from your maximum fat burning capacity, which is back at maximum aerobic heart rate. So in my example, 130 would be my maximum fat burning And then at 142, I'm kicking into a little bit of glucose burning. If you do that for months and months, you will compromise your fitness progress, your aerobic progress, and you will challenge your health. And in my case, uh, it ended up with just kind of accumulated fatigue, not feeling right, still going because I was so excited and motivated and enthusiastic when I got to the golf course, all fatigue would disappear because I love the sport of speed golf so much, uh, much more so than just putting on my watch and heading out for a run. Uh, it was just sort of a magical experience to get out there on the golf course and you know, getting up there in the black hole zone day after day, month after month, after many years of uh, uh, time off, whew, it was too much for my body and I just exploded and bombed out. So I want to issue that strong warning. I wrote about it carefully in Primal Endurance that even uh, drifting above, routinely drifting above five beats, 10 beats above for whatever uh, rationale that you have can be disastrous to your progress. It's far better to be conservative with your maximum aerobic heart rate calculations than it is to be aggressive. Go look on the Primal Endurance. Hopefully you've enrolled by now, primalendurance.fit. Uh, It's the most comprehensive course in the world ever developed for endurance athletes to learn all the particulars of how to uh, proceed with your endurance goals in a healthy manner and a broad-based comprehensive approach where you're talking about all the parameters, including uh, high-intensity training. But go look at the Phil Maffetone interviews where I sat down and spent a wonderful day with him at his home deep in the Arizona desert, and he was uh, offering up the pearls of wisdom that are... Uh, the most profound insights that we've ever been able to receive in the endurance uh, scene. He's been talking about this for 30, 40 years, and people are finally paying uh, requisite attention and giving him his due. 
But that's what he said. He says, be conservative. You're going to get a wonderful training effect at 10 beats below math, 20 beats, 30 beats below math, as I report often on this show about when I was an elite athlete and doing a lot of my training at 20, 30, 40, 50 beats below my maximum aerobic heart rate. Obviously, I had a nice conditioning base, so even at 30 or 40 beats below math heart rate, I was still running 9 or 10-minute miles and putting in a respectable workout. But nevertheless, a lot of my training as a professional was way below math. And now we have the uh, amateur enthusiast who has a more stressful life, uh, more busy, more hectic, more energy going out toward things other than training, unlike a professional, and asking, begging to up the beats a little bit. It just simply doesn't make sense, and it's setting you up for failure rather than success. That said, I know it's frustrating. As Chris says, it's a brutally slow pace. He does not like running 1330 miles in training when he is a fitness, uh, has the fitness capability to run a two hour half marathon. What is that? That's like nine or uh, let's see, you know, 10. I think that's somewhere around 10 minute miles. So way faster his race performance. But uh, I'm going to, strongly advocate, especially as you have a higher BMI, to lower that heart rate at 147 or well below and just teach your body to burn fat and get back from these workouts knowing that you burned predominantly fat and that's setting you up for success with weight loss, fat reduction, 24 hours a day. Um, And forget the breathe through your nose thing. If your heart rate goes higher, it just means you're getting really good at breathing through your nose and uh, missing the, uh, the spirit of the Uh, recommendation, which is to keep things at math heart rate. Okay, Ben says, I really enjoyed the book and follow up in the podcast. Uh, Your effort to focus on health is appreciated. Any advice for those who are only able to get out there for a couple short runs per week? In the past, I've raced decent times because I focused on using my limited running time for intervals and tempos, which led to many colds and fatigue. Now I'm doing aerobic runs and trying to supplement with a few minutes here and there of jumping rope and burpees and so forth. Another great question, and this is one that we all uh, really should take some time to ponder. So if you have a limited uh, amount of training time per week, for years and years, everyone has said, look, if you're limited on time, make the most of it, put in those high quality workouts, push yourself because of course you're going to recover. You're not going to be at high risk for uh, the overtraining patterns of uh, the overdistance athlete that's doing too many miles. I agree. I accept that. I realize that your risk factors are going to be lower and that you can possibly get away with um, elevating your heart rate more frequently when you have so much rest or inactivity built into the scene. So I know I'm stepping out of bounds here, man, but I'm saying, yeah, you know what? I think that's okay. If you're going out for a couple shorter runs per week, I would still advocate doing most of those at uh, math heart rates or below. And if you have that extra energy and that extra ambition and motivation, yeah, you can throw in some wind sprints or, as you say, jumping rope, burpees, and a few minutes here and there of high-intensity exercise is not really going to destroy you and lead to all these bad stories like this story I just told about myself. However, the higher your training volume, the more risk you invite for falling into chronic cardio patterns. So there's my little bitty free pass for... Uh, throwing in some intensity if you have limited time to train. However, realize that if you have a limited time to train, if you're limited in your aerobic base building, you're going to be less resilient uh, to recovery from these high-intensity sessions. So 
Um, if you're going to do, you know, 10 quarters on your, on your track workout, cause you only run a couple times a week, you're going to be heading into uh, a very certain injury, illness, burnout pattern, because that's just too much load if you're not really exercising. And this is what we see from the, the great elite athletes in the world in every endurance sport is they're putting in a massive uh, volume of miles. So you want to go online and uh, look for Galen Rupp's training log or something He's got a baseline training uh, of, let's say, 130 miles a week preparing for the marathon. So then when he throws down this impressive track workout that gets bantered around on flow track or wherever the uh, athletes gather to gossip about workouts, and he says, yeah, I did uh, six times one mile in 430, uh, followed by eight quarters in 60, and that was a great workout. Remember that that kind of magical stuff is coming off that base of 130 miles a week where a lot of those hours are aerobic, and he's so finely tuned and so well-trained that um, even the uh, even the uh, the ten mile run in sixty minutes is virtually like a warm up or a brisk stroll around the park for the uh, the mere mortal. So that's the um, perspective you have to take that everything's relative when it comes to the stress impact of workouts, and that's why we do our own personal calculation: one eighty minus age uh, for an aerobic workout, and whatever pace that uh, translates into. That's where you are today. Accept it. Smile. Enjoy the uh, scenery. If the thing beeps, start walking and understand that you are getting the same training effect that Galen Rupp's getting when he's running six-minute miles uh, for 10 miles. You're getting the same training effect when you're having to do a jog walk for 20 minutes. That's just how the body works. And if you're patient, you can progress and get fitter and fitter. And that's what's so fun about uh, aerobic development the right way. So Tom uh, says, I'm only a year into running and really loved it. until I bought Maffetone's Yellow Book and Primal Endurance. Because since then, I am a runner no more, and I don't have any fun on my runs. Thanks for being honest, man. I appreciate it. I do have a shiny new Garmin heart rate monitor, which I threw in the dirt today and jumped on it because I couldn't stand the beep, beep, beep anymore. Okay, funny guy. And Tom will be performing at the Laugh Factory on Friday night at 8 p.m. Go see him. Just kidding. In Primal Endurance, you talk a lot about running by feel, having fun, keeping stress low, but since I use this damn heart rate monitor, I am stressed, or should I say freaked out. I can't keep running for him because literally I'm not running anymore. So my question is, what has for more weight, running within the aerobic heart rate guidelines or being stressed out and freaked out and hating my time out there because um, it's more fun to run above MAF heart rate, even though I know I'm stressing my body? I'm 47 years old, so I'm 133 calculation. The nose breathing and enjoying my runs takes me up to 145 plus, which I usually can do for 10 to 12K. And English is my third language. Sorry for the bad English. You want wonderful English. So congratulations for writing a nice note in your third language, man. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. I feel ya. And what we're talking about here is the training principles that will promote health, that will put you at minimal risk of illness, injury, and burnout, and ultimately, especially if you have ambitious performance goals, going to lead to the best results. Uh, We use the analogy of uh, taking the time to build a powerful Tesla clean-burning engine when you're transitioning from carb dependency to fat-burning beast. And over that time, being patient, um, you will experience the highest potential for your performance. You'll be able to throw in intensity and benefit greatly from it. But if you uh, proceed in this black hole manner where uh, too many workouts are quote unquote kind of hard. 
And that's a great quote from Dave Scott. Listen to that show with the Iron Man legend on this channel where he gets into the, uh, the dangers of this kind of chronic pattern where you're uh, kind of hard too many times so that when you go really hard or when you're asked to go hard, it's not that impressive because you're carrying around too much fatigue and you don't get really those uh, rest and rejuvenating workouts. Uh, you're just always in that uh, medium zone. And I know that you get a payoff, you get an endorphin rush. Uh, we spent some time early in the book talking about the chemical high that occurs when you do a vigorous workout, when you do a medium to difficult workout, the stress hormones dump into your bloodstream and they give you that euphoric feeling, that endorphin high after you're done. And hey, it feels great. It's kind of the main reason that a lot of people uh, attribute to uh, doing their exercise program in the first place. They go to the gym because they get buzzed afterward, and maybe they're uh, a former addict trying to stay clean, and it's certainly a heck of a lot better than uh, hitting the bar after work. So we can't uh, disparage it too much, that uh, fitness boost and that, um, that buzz. Uh, however, it's nice to understand what's going on here. And when these pain-killing endorphin-like hormones flow into your bloodstream uh, during and after vigorous workouts, this is a genetically programmed fight-or-flight response, and it's designed to keep you from experiencing the pain that you ordinarily would feel when you push your body hard. So the tightness in your legs, the numerous other unpleasant sensations of post-workout fatigue that set in maybe 24 or 48 hours later, but in the immediate aftermath of workouts, you feel buzzed, and this is designed to keep you running when you're getting chased by a lion in the life-or-death primal situation. Literally, that's why our body throws these pain-killing hormones into our bloodstream, is to save our lives and keep us pushing on when we encounter a life-or-death fitness uh, ask, a fitness challenge. Um, so let's reason with that, with our higher-level thinking powers that we have in modern life now, and realize that this is nothing to mess with or abuse by overdoing it and going for this drug high too many days a week. If you're a CrossFit freak that likes to go five times a week, if you're an endurance machine that likes to accumulate a high weekly mileage and track it obsessively and uh, carry on and push through uh, routine signs, obvious signs of uh, impending illness or injury. And there's so many people in this category. And I speak to you from experience, from the bottom of my heart, man, because I was a guy who was very enthusiastic about uh, being a, a Division I NCAA collegiate runner at UC Santa Barbara. I had a great uh, high school career. I enjoyed it so much. I went off to the big, big school and was willing to do whatever it took to get on the starting line with the uh, the travel squad and cross country and into the meets uh, in track. And so I pushed my body to great extremes and did whatever the coach uh, laid down there, no matter what, even if I was tired, even if my legs hurt. And I drove myself right into uh, the student health center with illness, repeating illnesses and serious injuries that destroyed my collegiate running career. Um, the best example or the dumbest example is a stress fracture. So if you're listening now, raise your hand if you've ever incurred a stress fracture because that is the ultimate uh, injury of the, the badge of stupidity uh, goes on your forehead. Don't forget to write it backwards so everyone can see it. But a stress fracture is an injury that uh, provides repeated warning signs leading up to the stress fracture. So you'll get that tightness, that sharp pain, 
uh, along the shins, a common place for the stress fracture in one of your metatarsals or wherever it is, and it'll be throbbing, nagging pain that comes up and gets gradually worse over time with the warning bells going off and ringing right in your face. And I remember my final workout for the UCSB track team before I junked my uh, running career and uh, pursued the sport of triathlon. Uh, I remember that my shin was throbbing so painfully that I had to walk the quarter mile from my dorm to the track. So I, I kind of walked, limped over there and informed the coach that my left leg really, really hurt. And he said, well, go ahead and just do some barefoot strides on the grass and try to loosen it up and then try to jump into the workout if you can. And of course, being that willing, enthusiastic young athlete ready to do whatever it took, I dutifully tried to run a few strides and the pain was so bad, I just kept walking to the student health center. But how ridiculous that these things come up uh, when you, you know better uh, so many times. Same with my other favorite example for immune function is a sore throat. And I had to learn this the hard way uh, during my many years of uh, competing as an endurance athlete in uh, uh, track in high school and college, as well as uh, triathlon. That if you have even a slight sore throat, when you wake up and have that scratching little throat or that slight feeling of a hot or heavy head, this is the early warning sign of an impending cold. And a cold is not a major big deal, but it will compromise your workout performance for two weeks minimum. Not a lot. The first week is pretty terrible. You can notice it. You probably won't feel like exercising. The second week, you're coughing it out, but you will still be below 100% for a guaranteed two weeks, which is kind of a long time when you have uh, a big race eight weeks ahead. And you don't want to miss a single day of working out because you're looking at that timeline. You're looking at the number uh, circled on your calendar. However, if you detect that slight sore throat and you pull the plug on your life and call in sick for work, if possible, or at least don't exercise, nothing more than walking, you will give your uh, finely tuned immune system that you have as an athlete a chance to fight off the illness and possibly feel completely better in the next day or two. So it's a trade-off of two days of you know, virtually no exercise or two weeks of drastically diminished training because you blatantly ignored that early warning sign of a more serious impending illness. Thank you, Dr. Walter Kearns, for reminding me of this from the time I was a little kid saying, yep, two weeks, you're going to be down for two weeks with that cold. I'm like, no, 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 I, I feel fine now four days later. And then I'd go out and do another workout and plunge myself deeper into the recovery period, making the cold worse rather than uh, finally fighting it out. And when I, I look back on my training logs over years and years, and believe me, I got sick a lot of times when I was pushing myself really hard and uh, not adhering to the uh, sensible training principles uh, during my running days, I would get sick five or six times a year and have a couple weeks down periods due to these colds that would be recurring because I wasn't paying attention to common sense and intuition. That's why we're uh, creating this informed and impassioned message for you now. Okay, Rob is going to ask about kids and his 13-year-old son playing competitive soccer and heading into uh, a high school career. So competitive when you use that term in youth soccer, this is indicative of a very uh, challenging and sophisticated experience uh, far beyond the community leagues where the kids play for fun. They have a distinct season that lasts for a few months. Usually the competitive teams are traveling around to uh, higher level tournaments with similar 
devoted players, and sometimes the seasons uh, go virtually year-round, even at the age of 13. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of controversy about this. You've read articles probably about pushing kids too hard, especially insisting that they specialize in a single sport. And this is uh, believed by many experts to be highly detrimental to their overall and eventual development to their athletic potential in whatever sport. Steve Nash had a great podcast on the Bill Simmons show where you know he was talking about his background where uh, he was such a, a devoted soccer player and did a lot of other sports growing up in Canada, even the, uh, the water sports, the ice sports. And he believes that all that led to um, his you know, ultimate uh, development of peak performance as a basketball player, especially how soccer and basketball are related. And Steve Nash was uh, lauded for his ability to pass and see the open man and anticipate the cutting and all these things that are uh, very similar between soccer and basketball. And now we have places like uh, high schools in the Los Angeles area. I won't name any names, Santa Monica High School, where um, the kids are uh, strongly discouraged from pursuing other sporting opportunities if they want to make the starting squad or the varsity squad in soccer. And it's absolutely uh, short-sighted, ridiculous, uh, promoting increased injury risk and taking the fun out of the uh, sporting experience for the kid. Uh, Thankfully, there's some enlightened people like uh, athletic director Mark Lee at Placer High School, who encourages kids to pursue multiple sports and will welcome basketball players right onto the floor coming off of football season, knowing that they've worked so hard, just like their teammates who are strict basketball players, but uh, knowing that we're all in all in this together in terms of uh, uh, promoting sports on the school campus. So um, it's nice to have that encouragement for kids to explore other sports and keep active in different ways so you don't overload those specific muscles and get into overuse patterns that are so common. Huh, baseball players too? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, the Tommy John surgery that was named after the Dodgers pitcher from uh, the 70s and 80s where they did a advanced procedure where they took ligaments, I think, from other parts of his body and fixed up his elbow, and he was able to pitch for many more years, um, now is so common, even down to the youth levels, that it's absolutely shocking. And so it's just an indication of absolutely shredding, blowing out those tendons from throwing too many pitches and uh, also believed to be too many breaking balls and things that cause uh, unnatural twisting of the joints in the arm. And it's kind of sad because kids' careers are ending uh, when they're 15, 16, 17, rather than 35, 36, 37, like uh, Sandy Koufax or Roger Clemens or Nolan Ryan. Whew! Okay, so back to Rob's question about his kid. Um, They want you to run a six-minute mile at age 13 in preseason soccer camp. I don't think my kid's close to that pace, and he doesn't run much outside practices and games. So how would a kid improve his mile time, improve his speed without overdoing it? And I'm also wondering about developing fast twitch muscles versus slow twitch. Uh, I would think that mostly slower paced running uh, you promote does not engage the fast twitch muscles. Okay, and he's talking about how um, uh, this soccer is pretty much a year-round experience for his kid. So I like that first question, um, how does a kid improve their fitness without overdoing it? And I would say you answered your own question here because he's not uh, doing a lot of specific running practice outside of practices and games. But when you're in a high-level youth competitive athletic experience, that's definitely plenty. Not probably, definitely. We don't want to send a kid out doing extra workouts when they're part of a a group experience that's already 
uh, questionably pushing the the outer limits of what a youth's capable of in terms of this uh, year-round commitment to one sport. So um, I think these kids are going to get in fabulous shape from uh, their soccer practice, especially at competitive level. You have coaches that know what they're doing. You don't have kids standing around in line like the dad coaches in the community leagues where the kids line up to kick one shot at the goal and then get back in line, or there's only one ball around for most of the practice. I always tried to have you know 11 soccer balls on the field for 11 kids so they'd have their foot on the ball for a good portion of that hour and a half practice time you know just getting them active getting them moving getting them working on their own personal skills okay so um don't worry about outside training if you're in a competitive soccer program and then regarding the fast twitch versus slow twitch uh this is might be interesting to everyone who's thinking about uh, their athletic goals and what races are best for them and what the training does to their body. Uh, you're right. The aerobic-based training is predominantly developing the, developing the slow-twitch muscle fibers. You're asking for an endurance experience rather than an explosive experience. But interestingly, I think a lot of the seasoned uh, marathon runners and uh, uh, multi-sport athletes know that when your slow-twitch muscle fibers start to fatigue, after many hours of vigorous exercise, let's say hitting mile 20 of the marathon and you have six miles to go and you're experiencing that dull, uh, nagging pain in your lower back, hip flexors, hamstrings, these are signs that that slow twitch muscle fibers are getting worn out. And what your body does under those circumstances, if you're trying to keep going, is it starts to recruit the oxidative fast twitch muscle fibers to perform uh, the remaining activity of however many miles you have left to go. So there's two types of fast twitch muscle fibers, type A and type B. And boy, I don't want to mess it up. One of them is uh, non-oxidative and one of them has the potential to process oxygen, although it does not need to because it's a fast twitch muscle fiber. So you can transition those fibers to perform endurance activity and they will actually uh, propel you to the finish line even when you're moving at a slow pace. Now, here's the um, question that uh, is buried in your your message here. If you do uh, a lot of endurance training, will you kind of lose something on the explosive fast twitch side? And many experts believe that Unfortunately, the answer is yes. So if you're trying to dunk like me and you're putting in a lot of miles doing uh, speed golf or endurance training, uh, your dunking ability is going to be compromised when you're training those, uh, those muscle fibers to, uh, you're recruiting them to become uh, more oxidative than explosive. Uh, in, the, in the case of the ones that flip-flop back and forth, the type, uh, the, the type that is, has the potential for oxidative. So that's uh, pretty much a trade-off, and I think everyone can uh, realize that, uh, for me anyway, when I go and do my high jumping, that's in direct conflict with, let's say, uh, developing aerobic capacity to run at anaerobic threshold for a speed golf tournament that lasts, the, the run lasts, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, I'm not as explosive, I'm not as powerful, I'm not as recovered, I'm not as springy because I'm putting in hours of aerobic conditioning. And the anaerobic athletes, again, Maffetone talked about this interestingly in his series of videos, you don't really need to train anaerobic muscle fibers that frequently. And a lot of your potential is related to genetics, as you can see from um, the 100-meter field at the local high school track meet. 
these kids have not been training for hours and hours for years and years like a, a golfer or a tennis player or a volleyball player or an endurance athlete who makes it all the way to the state championships. This is uh, the genetics at play where they're just fine-tuning uh, the, the gifts that were given to them when they won the first race across the playground when they were in sixth grade, okay? So if you have a high preponderance of fast-twitch muscle fibers, uh, as is common with those of ancestry near the equator. Uh, obviously, the West African heritage are the folks that dominate the um, explosive sports, especially the 100-meter sprint. There's a great book by John Entine, wrote many years ago called Taboo, and it talks about some of the cultural factors where um, we're not supposed to make blanket statements like blacks are faster at sprinting, but you know, getting into the realities of it and how your ancestry and your musculoskeletal build affects your uh, potential in, uh, in, in athletics. So anyway, um, if you have a high preponderance of fast twitch muscle fibers, you don't have to be African descent to have that. You can see people um, of all uh, uh, ethnicities uh, displaying explosive power in uh, numerous sports, including uh, things like gymnastics, where you don't make that direct comparison to the basketball dunker, but these are people with explosive fast twitch muscles. You don't really need to train those for hours and hours a day. Uh, in contrast to the endurance athlete who is uh, putting in a lot of time to fine-tune that aerobic capacity, knowing that those slow-twitch muscle fibers can go for hours on end and they don't get fatigued and they don't get uh, you know, sharply sore the following day from uh, explosive use. So that's a nice, long, detailed answer about the difference between training your slow-twitch muscles and your fast-twitch muscles and the compromise that you do make when you're pursuing endurance goals. So most everyone listening that's uh, shooting for uh, uh, fitness goals that last for over 15 minutes, let's say, um, you know, 5K and up, you're talking about um, a predominantly aerobic activity where the, the training of your fast twitch muscle fibers uh, has mini minimal contribution to your overall success. That said, you can make great fitness gains when you perform high intensity workouts because when you ask your muscles, and your heart and lungs to perform at maximum capacity, it improves their ability to perform at all intensities below maximum. This makes obvious intuitive sense that if you can sprint well, you'll be better at holding your seven minute per mile pace or your nine minute per mile pace. So it does have a direct application. Same with the ability to, let's say, perform explosive box jumps in the gym or load up the bar with weight and go down and do some deep squats. This has a direct application to your ability to perform when you're doing uh, long distance stuff. I mean, uh, Kelly Starrett has some great quotes about this where uh, he's talking about, let's say, doing lunge work in the gym where you're doing kettlebell and going down into a lunge. How does that translate to someone who's trying to run a faster marathon? Well, as he says, all a marathon is is a prolonged series of mini lunges. So by asking your muscles to perform at maximum capacity, that's why we have uh, sprinting and intense training right into the mix with the comprehensive primal endurance program. When you get good at doing that stuff, all other intensities seem easier to your body. So this is really training the uh, heart, lungs, and muscles, but also training your brain, your central nervous system, to lower your rate of perceived exertion because you sprint once in a while and get comfortable and competent with sprinting. 
Then, uh, same with, uh, let's say, a biking example where if you're doing uh, intervals that take you up to 27 miles an hour and you know what it feels like to pedal that quickly, your routine rides at 17 miles per hour are going to seem easier. That's my little tidbit for the show, but please read the book, uh, listen to some of the videos where I get into more detail about this subject, and that's kind of the rationale for doing high-intensity stuff, even when you're training for a slow-paced marathon. Okay, I think we got to some good questions there and covered a broad range of topics. So it was a lot of fun for me to uh, delve into the various areas. Thank you so much for contributing to the show with your questions. Send them to info at primalendurance.fit and go check out the landing page. Uh, We've done a nice job putting up a lot of content and a lot of sampling of what you're going to get with the Primal Endurance Mastery course. We have our first group of students moving through the course uh, and loving it and sending back good feedback and also sending back uh, nice constructive feedback about uh, making some changes or uh, navigating a little better because there's so much information on there. But I think you're really going to love it, the expert interviews and also uh, the host, me, taking you through step-by-step virtually everything in the book so you can have a learning experience Uh, that's more interpersonal than just reading the words in the book. And you can sit back after a long, hard day reading things on your computer screen and just watch some funny, entertaining videos. You never know when we're going to go off script and uh, do something memorable. So (laughs) that's my pitch for the course. How about that instead of a cheesy commercial for the podcast? Thanks so much for listening. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Have a great day. That's right. You're dripping with finesse. It don't make no sense. Are you dripping with finesse? You know, you know. Are you dripping with finesse? It don't make no sense. Out here dripping in finesse. You know, you know.